do people say that I am? It is a question that Jesus asks in the book of Matthew that if you think about it, is an intensely uh, brave question to ask. This is not a question, uh, this is one of the rare times in life where I would encourage you not to follow Jesus' example, okay? Uh, If you want to get depressed this week, go around asking people, oh, what do people think about me, right? Because um, most of us just don't have the self-confidence to handle hearing unfiltered exactly what everybody else thinks about us, particularly in that, um, the particular way Jesus does it, because You know, if you ask uh, a spouse or a friend or a loved one, what do you think about me? They probably will say, oh, you know, your spouse will say, you are just this beautiful, wonderful man. I'm so glad I'm married, right? Because that's what you're supposed to say when your spouse asks something like that. But I know from my experience in ministry that people are sane is typically shorthand for something nasty that I think and I want to make you feel better about, right? When preachers hear the phrase, well, you know, people are saying that the sermons are a little too long, what they mean is, I think that the sermons are a little too long, but I don't want to admit to it. <laughs> and so Jesus asks this amazingly vulnerable question to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? What do people whisper about me when I'm not listening? And it really puts a target on him, right? This is asking people to sort of criticize, asking people to give you the kinds of feedback that many of us are not strong enough to handle. And yet Jesus asks the question anyway. And his disciples give him very interesting feedback. Um, They name a couple of people that people uh, often associate Jesus with. And so the disciples give him three names. They say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. And I think what they mean is that you're like John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist has just died. People know that Jesus and John the Baptist are different. We've read other places in Matthew where they actually criticize Jesus because he's not enough like John the Baptist. So they know they're different personalities. But I think what they're saying is uh, some people think that you're a fiery preacher, Um, Some people think that you're an enemy of the government, that you're kind of actively attacking the power structures that be. Um, Or they're saying many people think that you're a preacher who's eventually going to get himself killed because he can't keep his mouth shut. Right. That is what it means to be John the Baptist at this point in history. And so there's lots of things they could mean, but they say John the Baptist is one option. Um, They say other people say you're Elijah. Uh, This is a very fascinating reference because of the Jewish tradition that surrounded Elijah. Elijah was one of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. He famously goes up to heaven in a chariot. And because of the book of Malachi and because of the way that Judaism developed between the end of the Hebrew Bible and the beginning of the New Testament, there was this deep desire, this thought that Elijah was going to return as the herald of the Messiah. The one who is going to bring in God's kingdom. Uh, We still have little signs of this. If you have um, Jewish friends that practice uh, Passover seders, you maybe have heard that they leave a chair empty for Elijah. And they leave the door open for Elijah. And there is a cup of wine that they do not drink because that is Elijah's cup. And the whole reason that they have those traditions is sort of to say we still have hope of a coming herald of the Messiah, 
that Elijah will come and that next year in Jerusalem, right, we'll have this uh, new kingdom of God come into being. And so Elijah, when they say that Jesus is him, it's a belief that he would be this sort of a herald, that he would speak about the coming Messiah. Um, It's interesting for us Christians, often we have assigned John the Baptist to this role. Uh, Even Jesus himself sort of makes this suggestion that the Elijah that Malachi promised, who would come and declare the Messiah, is in fact John the Baptist. He's the one who has come first. And then they say Jeremiah. This is a very interesting option because I think what they're saying is a lot of people think that you're getting nowhere. Jeremiah is the prophet that famously was the morning prophet because he would tell people things and they would ignore him. And so Jeremiah never does particularly well uh, in his prophetic career as far as getting people to actually be any different. He's just a constant string of depressing uh, failures. Uh, he is the, the candide of the Hebrew Bible. And so maybe they're saying, you know, we think that you're one of these guys that says lots of great things that nobody listens to. Or you're, you're a prophet who will end up mourning because of how little people care. Or mourning because you're speaking about disaster that's coming and that which we cannot avert. Uh, maybe they say he's one who's calling for repentance. But in all these ways, they say little things about who they believe Jesus to be. But then Jesus turns up the pressure a little bit. And he says, okay, enough of that. What do you think? And you can see that the question gets very pointed and a little bit more difficult for the disciples. Because I can imagine one of them sheepishly, he goes, well, who do people say I am? And, you know, James the Less or someone is like, well, I mean, I'm not saying this, but somebody, I mean, there was a guy in this village, again, not me, just the messenger, you know, uh, who said you were Elijah, right? And it's pretty easy to deflect. This is something I heard. This is hearsay. This is somebody else's thoughts. And Jesus goes, well, enough of that. What do you think? And he's forcing them into a very personal question. What do you guys think about me? Uh, I imagine, this isn't in the text, I imagine it gets a little quiet. You know, they've kind of gotten comfortable spitballing and repeating things that other people said, and now all of a sudden, they have to answer. And I imagine it gets quiet, and then of course the answer we get comes from the person we expect to give such an answer. Uh, Peter stands up and he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Um, There's a couple things that are, I think, very important here in this this phrase. We can unpack it because sometimes it's difficult for us with some of these theological terms. We forget what they mean. Uh, For most people, if you say, what does the Messiah mean? They go, well, Jesus. And you go, well, who is Jesus? And they go, well, he's the Messiah. Well, okay, that's a wonderful logical circle that we've just gone in together. But what does it actually mean? Uh, Messiah is a royal term. It just means one who is anointed. It brings to mind the imagery of the kings being anointed in the Hebrew Bible. This is an image of King David with his brothers being anointed with oil so that he could become king of Israel. And so there is a a definite royal sense to it. It brings to mind uh, political and military connotations. And it's sort of saying this is the one who has been selected to rule. Um, That's what messiahship would bring to mind. 
And even the second phrase, son of the living God, I think is very similar in its attribution. Um, Interestingly enough, when you read the Hebrew Bible, you would think that there'd be a lot more talk about sons of God in it. There are not. Sons of God are these weird angelic creatures in the Genesis uh, like 7 or 8. And then they kind of, there's the phrase doesn't appear again in um, Jewish scripture, except for this really important passage. Psalm 2, uh, which you may be familiar with, is a royal psalm. It's a psalm that the early Christian church quoted in reference to Jesus. And in this royal psalm, it says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. This is really common in the ancient world when you had a king to talk about the king as the son of God. We see this even with like uh, Louis XIV and all these kinds of French kings, right? They were the sons of God. Um, And it happened all the way back there. Here, this is a Davidic concept that David has become God's son when he becomes the king. Um, I think that later on we take more uh, deep like Trinitarian father, son, and spirit meanings from what Peter said here. But I think when Peter says it, he's actually just repeating himself. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the anointed king who is the the, the son of the father in the same way David was the son of the father. And it's a, it's again, it's a declaring of him in a certain royal role. And so what David, uh, so Peter then is basically making these declarations that Jesus has become the king, the Messiah, the promised one. All right, I want to stop now and take us uh, back a minute so that we can maybe put ourselves in the seats of these disciples as Jesus says these things. Uh, I imagine Jesus asking us, who do people say that I am? And I think, um, I'll go back for a sec. Jesus says, who do, I say, who do uh, people say that I am? And I think for many of us, we would, um, we might say similar things to the disciples. Oh, well, people say you're a really great teacher or that you're a prophet. Uh, you maybe have heard this often. Listen, I'm not into the whole religion thing. I'm not confident about you know, Jesus being God. That's a bit much. But I think he was a great ethical and moral teacher. I think that Jesus um, really uh, was an important speaker. Um, if you ask a Marxist, They will probably say that Jesus is one of the great revolutionaries of history who helped to overthrow the social order. Um, There was a book written uh, recently that was somewhat popular um, by an uh, an author who talked about Jesus as kind of a political identity who was trying to overthrow Rome. There's all these different ideas of who Jesus is. But then Jesus looks at us and goes, no, seriously, you... Who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer is instructive for us for two reasons. Um, The one is the specificity that that Peter gives Jesus when he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Uh, This picture up here is uh, a typical, this is from English class, right? Many of us remember this, where we were taught about plots to a story. And then a plot would slowly escalate, there'd be a climax, and then at the end there'd sort of be conclusion. This is up here because it's significant for us that Judeo-Christian understanding of the world is a plot like this. 
Judeo-Christian theology is linear, okay? You're like, what does this matter? Why are you talking about this? But this is important because um, many Eastern religions, many other philosophical systems are cyclical. And so for those religions, things come around and things go, but the same thing's going to happen again. And so they might look at Jesus as one in a long series of prophets and teachers and godly people that come into existence. And one is born, we learn from them, they die, and then another century or two goes around and it kicks around again and it happens again. But this is not the way that Jewish and Christian people have thought about the universe. It's not cyclical. Scripture does not teach that the world sort of starts and begins and starts and begins. Sure, there's the cycle of our seasons, but Christian theology has always said, and Jewish theology, the world was created, there was sin, things escalate, and eventually there will be a Messiah who will bring a kingdom, and then that will bring the resolution, which is the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom of God. And while uh, Jewish theology sees that climax is not occurring yet, typically, some Jewish theologians, I think, are, are kind of done with messiahship as an idea, but many still hope for a messiah. Uh, Christian theology believes that Messiah has come in Jesus. And this is important because Jesus is this pinnacle. He's the top. He's the climax. He's the point. He's the thing that the entire story has been pushing towards. And I don't say this just to kind of do this Christian exclusivism thing where we kind of say like, well, Jesus is the only way and everybody else is wrong. That's not the point as much to say as if you want to understand the story of the New Testament, you cannot understand it on its own terms in a cyclical worldview. Um, for Peter and for John and James and for the early disciples of Jesus, he was not a Messiah, an option, a teacher. He was the Messiah. And that title has world-changing, world-ending importance. It's a category that is very, very specific. But not only that, I think Peter is also uh, pointing to royal imagery. He is saying that Jesus is unique, that Jesus is different, and that because Jesus is the specific entity, because he is the Messiah, that we have to give over our lives to him. There is royal imagery here. That in the end, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control. When Peter says, you are the, the, the Messiah, the son of the living God, he says, you now have control of my life. And that's a huge thing to hand over to Jesus, that Jesus is now in control. Um, what Jesus thus does in this passage, and what Peter does for us, is he heightens this, this, this moment of decision. Are you going to live with Jesus as the king of your life or not? Is he going to be in control or not? And for many of us, we, don't, we like control. The immediate question I think many of us ask is, well, him being in control, what does that mean? What does that look like? And I could probably give a good sermon on what that looks like. But I would say that if your heart needs desperately to know what it looks like before you give over control, you're not really giving over control. <laughs> right? 
If you're like, hey, listen, I'm willing to let you drive the car as long as I have a thorough explanation of every turn you're going to make, how fast you're going to drive, and how well you're going to obey the signs. Okay, how trusting of you, right? And so they come to this moment, and Peter is just selling out here. He's saying, you know what, whatever you want. You're the king. You're the, you're the, 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 the king of the universe, quite literally. And so I'm going to do what you ask. And this is really what Jesus has been driving at with these questions. Are you going to treat me like just another prophet in a long line of prophets who, by the way, you all ignored? Or are you actually going to let me drive? Are you actually going to let me be in control? And Peter says, yes. And here's the really cool thing about this. As soon as he does, Jesus then empowers him to do things for him. As soon as he recognizes Jesus' identity, Jesus then feeds back into him a new identity for Peter. So this is the way it works. As soon as that passage is done, as soon as Peter makes this declaration, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, Jesus here plays some fun little uh, word games. Uh, Peter's original name in Hebrew is Simon. That's the way everybody knows him. Uh, Jesus renames him. He gives him a nickname. And it's Peter. Um, which, for us, it, this always looks goofy. I had a translation that did this, and it was kind of fun, but it looks bizarre for us. He, he names him Rocky, is what he does. Like, in our, in our society, we really should take this Peter and just think of it as Rocky. Simon comes up, and Jesus goes, that's Rocky. And everybody's like, okay, Rocky. And that's just like what he's left with. And that's the play on words here. You are Rocky. And on that rock, I will build my kingdom. This is a play on words that Jesus is doing. And then he gives Peter all of these important responsibilities. Now, uh, particularly where we live in the country, this verse immediately causes all kind of consternation for Catholics and Protestants alike. Because the Catholics go, aha, look. The Pope is supposed to be the Pope and in charge, and you're supposed to listen to him. And Protestants then had to fight, well, no, the rock is the you know, confession of Peter. It's not Peter himself. I find both of those very unsatisfactory answers. I think Jesus is talking to Peter, and he's giving Peter special responsibilities. Uh, I don't think this passage is applied to all of us. I don't think Jesus is saying... I think he's saying to Peter, what you bind will be bound. That's a very special thing that's not as applicable for Caleb as it is for Peter, okay? So he does. He gives him the special role and the special authority. And I think more than getting all tied up in what that means and sort of like these uh, theological debates about the meaning here, I think it's really important here that we see the more general principle. Peter says, I confess that you are the king and that you are in control. And Jesus says, awesome. Let me now empower you to help serve that kingdom. That confession leads to empowerment. That acknowledging who Jesus is in our life 
provides us the opportunity to then go and do amazing things for God. That Jesus doesn't leave us empty-handed. That he's not some royal that's like, am I king? And everybody goes, yes, you're king. And he goes, good. And then he walks off and he goes, sits on his throne. He says, oh, now that you get it, now that I know that you understand the way this works, now you can be my royal servant. You can be, um, in a way, you can be knighted, right? You can be trusted to do the work that I have to do. I can now place you in a position of authority. And there's this back and forth where Jesus is affirmed by Peter and then he affirms Peter. And says, you are going to be really important to these things. Here are the kings, here are the keys to my kingdom. I want you to serve me in a special role. Um, This isn't a particularly practical sermon, but it is in the same way. Every day you're going to go out and make life choices about who you're going to be and how you're going to act. And a lot of times those feel kind of like just weak, flaccid attempts to do anything, right? There's sometimes we feel like, geez, I just, I'm struggling to get through. And I think there's a beauty in this really important passage in saying, when we look at Jesus and we say, you get to be in control, he goes, awesome. Then you get to have some power to do things. Now that I know I can trust you to have the right priorities Let's get rolling. And we're just going to be frustrated until we get done with that. As long as we're trying to fight to make sure that we are in control of things, then we're just going to be spinning our wheels and it doesn't work as well. Uh, There's a lot here about identity. Originally, it was Jesus who said, who do people say that I am? And Peter responds. But in the end, the question that's answered is, who do people say that Peter is? And the answer is a serving servant of the living God. And that his willingness to serve Jesus becomes the way Peter is defined from there on out. And it's our hope that that is the same for us. That our willingness to serve um, Jesus is ultimately the thing that defines who we are. So that if you asked around, if you were vulnerable enough to say, what do people say about me? Even your critics would go, oh, you're so obsessed with doing all that church stuff and following Jesus and all that. We go, okay, I can take that. Um, we do a question and answer period at the end of all of our sermons. Do you guys have any questions about today? Yeah, I think, um, I think we're definitely to emulate Peter here. Like I said, the passage is a little difficult because I think Peter does have a very special role in the church. Um, again, for me, this is not the establish of a popedom as much as it's uh, really where it comes to bear is that passage I read earlier today at the beginning of service, Acts 2, where, um, where Peter is sort of speaking on the day of Pentecost and he sort of establishes the church, so to speak. And I think in many ways that is the way that this is lived out. Is Jesus says, Peter, you're my guy. And when push comes to shove, when somebody is going to publicly declare the resurrection of Jesus for the first time, Peter is that person. But I think the more general principle is applicable for us. That when we learn how to confess and accept Jesus as Lord and really mean it, meaning he's in control, it gives us um, power and strength then to do the sorts of work that he would have us to do. Uh, That ministry always flows from the relationship one has with God.